Back to the gaming grid. In honor of apparently Tron 3 joining the perpetually new Crow movie as actually happening, what movie that is considered a bomb needs a revival sequel? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm changing my answer at the last second. You remember that movie, The Adjustment Bureau, with Matt Damon and the hats? That was a good movie. Make another one. I'm Matt Patches. Hey, kiddo. Lost track of time. And I'm going to go with Jupiter Ascending. Got to get two more of those. Need the full trilogy. Show us the whole saga. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and uh, the David Fincher-directed Girl Who Played With Fire, if they're not going to give him another Manhunter season. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and I don't know if it quite fits the uh, the rubric for this question, but I, of course, have to go with Alien Covenant. Ridley Scott seems intent on doing any, for everything and anything besides making the third installment in his Alien prequel trilogy, and that bums me out because Covenant fucking rules. Batches, I thought you were going to say the Tom Cruise mummy. Ooh, more Dark, dark Universe. Un- yeah. Dark Universe, baby. <laughs> dark Universe expanding. Ooh. Ooh. Dark Universe expanding, Jupiter ascending. Ooh. Mm, crossover. Nailed it. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It is episode 312, Pandemic 22. It's the week of Wednesday, August 12th, 2020. That is the day that in 1927, the movie Wings was released. It would win the first Best Picture Uh, Oscar. Thomas Hayden Church was nominated for Best Actor for that, right? Yeah, yeah, it was Mm -hmm. famous. Mm -hmm. Um, Really redefining the awards calendar. You know, August back then, like, you know, the help opens then sometimes. Sometimes you get the butler. Wings really set the tone. Inglorious Bastards. Yep. Redefining the awards calendar by being the first uh, b- best picture winner. Fine, defining <laughs> the awards calendar, <laughs> never to be altered again. We only uh, had the Baftas before the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> then we then we went to war with the Baftas and won the Oscars. Uh, we, we went to war alongside the Baftas. Come on, they were the Allies. Don't you know your World War II history? Okay, David, welcome back. It's nice to Hi. see you. I'm sorry that you had to come back. Your vacation uh, seemed lovely. Thank you. It was lovely. We'll you be talking. We'll be off. Actually, I did. Well, I just wanted to make you, you look like a fool when you said it was nice to see me. I Although know, anyone, was, anyone listening to this should know that it is never nice to see me. <laughs> so they're already already knowing that you're a liar. But we'll talk about what I did over my vacation uh, in our third segment tonight. But uh, oh. you're going to you're going to ask if we have uh, reviews. And I, I was going so to answer. What a leading question. That we have three. Uh, Cal O'Boyle says, we're done. Five stars. Huge fan of the progressively great blending of, Char- <laughs> of Charlie's outro with beats that slap. Great job, Dave Seven. Everyone else, also good. Very helpful. Short, hey. sweet, to the point. Yeah. That's, That's the first time we've some... ever been called progressive. <laughs> There was a great Charlie. We're done uh, on the the poopity scoop episode. God, I was people uh, who listen to this podcast know what I'm talking about. I, had, I was thinking about the poopity scoop song the other day, and then I was like, "Who in my life is loathsome enough to keep reminding me that that song exists?" And then I remembered Steve. it was Dave Seven. Uh, Danny, in parentheses, not of House Targaryen, says, "Sex education, five stars." 
I don't know if I just love him because I'm kind of a pretentious ass too, but David is my fave and he's usually spot on with his reviews matching my tastes. Katie is the great too. Is that a, is that a subliminal plug for the great, which on Patch's recommendation, Elisa and I've just started watching and I really enjoyed the pilot Uh, and adds much needed female representation. If only Patches would stop interrupting her. Ah, I don't think that really happens that much. Patches. You definitely interrupt David more than me. I try. It might just be because I talk more than you to everyone's detriment. But anyway, not to this reason. Danny says patches, comma is okay. Most oh. days I can take him or leave him. Dave Seven gets way into the nerd verse, and sometimes I'm so there, but sometimes I am so not. All in all, this is a great podcast with a great mix of peeps and keeps me informed of all the latest and greatest movies and television. We just call it content now, Danny, with a capital C. Also, as a new parent, hey it has been awesome to hear <laughs> other new parents in this space talk about their experiences, too. Side note, I'm a little behind. Just heard David talk about sex education. Watch sex education. It is great. Stop being haters. Peace sign. One of the – I'm not going to say that it's the, the worst uh, – thing that's happened because of the the pandemic but one of the top five worst things that's happened because of the pandemic is that uh, season three of sex education has been delayed indefinitely um real a real shame uh but thank you for reminding me that i have something Don't to look forward to the uk can't they do that they, they, they certainly they'll, they'll be able to film it i think they film it in wales uh and they will which is i guess part of the uk and uh they will presumably be able to resume production sooner than they would be if they were shooting here um and finally we have little lail who says like having friends in your ears weekly i don't know if that's a good thing but little lail did <laughs> give us uh, friendly five stars. There is so much to love about this podcast. I have especially been enjoying the pandemic check-ins. All four hosts have great and varied opinions to contribute. I must disagree with Katie and Patch's opinions about Shit's Creek. Dan Levy and Annie Murphy are as essential and wonderful as Catherine O'Hara's over-the-top and genius performance. Also, why does no one say the actual C-word when discussing Harley Quinn? You all say the F-word. Is there some prohibition against that word? Just curious. Mm, what is the C word, friends? Is the, uh, is the C word the C word? Yeah, I, I, I believe it's the C word because it's, it's really in reference to Harley Quinn. So it's a reference to masterminds. Right. Uh, calling Wonder Woman that. I don't really say that word. Wait, there are graphic novels in which word. people call Wonder Woman. I, I okay. It's, it's, it's a yes, cartoon a jo- on HBO <laughs> Max. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there's a uh, joke that, where they use the c word. It's a recurring joke. They so, bleep yeah. it uh, in the the thing where they, they also say it. fuck. Interesting. I struggle yeah. with the c word, which I do not use colloquially, even though I really like it, because I think in America it has too loaded a misogynistic connotation. But yeah. where I was introduced to the word, which is mostly through British film and television, it doesn't really seem to have that connotation, and uh, it was always just a really fun word to say. And I, I don't like that I. I mean, the I premise of Harley Quinn, too, is that, that it's, I, like, I don't forbidden. It. Yeah. The whole point yeah. is the character says it, and you don't say that word. You can anyway. say fuck, fuck, fuck all the time. But. Yeah. I, um, 
anyway, I off podcast, I would say it, but it just doesn't seem, the juice doesn't seem worth the squeeze. I mean, like I can say it and think that it's innocent enough. Um, that, and I enjoy That's probably it. a better way to describe it. I probably it, aged out of saying it. Sure. It's yeah. probably what I'm, well, in, yeah, I where I'm living now. I feel like I, I need never... to say it, but the risk of offense, it just doesn't seem important enough to me to bother. Actually, I will say one of the funniest jokes I've ever seen, or one of the times I've laughed the most, is when the Onion tweeted about Quavajne. Oh was my god! Be Why did you have to go there? And, <laughs> and, used, and used that word. And, and my god, so much trouble. My I, god! I think I'm on the record on this podcast as saying that that was a hilarious. Uh, it is a hilarious <laughs> joke. But I understand. The, I understand the backlash, but my god, that is one of the great tweets of all time. I understand <laughs> the backlash conceptually, but uh, I I was angry at it as it was happening uh, and remain, you know, low-key miffed about it. But and maybe that only strengthens my resolve for us indeed to bring the C word into non-gendered circulation in the United States. But No, I think you oh, only well. use it if you have a tweet like that in your back pocket and then you're still going to reap the whirlwind. So you right, you still, you still get fired from your job. And was it not worth it? Probably it. not. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one can fire us from this podcast. You'd be surprised. I'm sure there is some way that uh, they could mobilize a, a fan campaign to get us removed to just put the pressure on us so that we individually feel like we if you pay have us to leave. uh fifty thousand dollars we you, will you can buy this podcast fire for... the uh, host of your choice what percentage of that money will the fired host get to take with yeah them? that's a, that's an important question um, he's fired thank you yeah, for I mean, i'm assuming it i'm assuming it's a he statistically it would be a he uh yeah. thank you all very much for leaving us reviews please 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 go on itunes fighting in the war room leave us a review we'll read it live on the show always great to hear from you especially these days in this endless summer three uh thanks onwards pixar's onward i still haven't seen that no one has <laughs> really? It's right there. They put May it on the well streaming platform. I keep trying to get Charlie to watch it, and he's like, nah. I'm going to watch Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers instead. Whoa. Good choice. Yeah. That's fine. I think DuckTales is better. Uh, we've waited many weeks to talk about I May Destroy You just for various vacations and people trying to catch up on it. Um, it is still airing on HBO. It is a series that aired in the UK earlier this year, um, created by Michaela Cole, who writes every episode and stars in it, which is a really uh, impressive feat, although it gets more and more common these days, given the way that television is going. Um, it feels when it starts like it's like a young friends hanging out in London uh, show, kind of in the in the spirit of girls or... Uh, um, oh, what's the other version of this I'm thinking of? Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It shows about young people Girls. making their way through. Insecure, maybe a, a good comparison to. Um, and it's interesting, and it's got all these charismatic actors, Michaela Cole included, and then uh, it takes a turn at the end of the first episode where its main character is sexually assaulted and raped. Um, and it's like, for a while, it feels like it's going to be a detective show about her trying to piece together what happened and find the person who did it, and then it kind of evolves from there. It is a fun show. It's funny. These people are really like enjoyable to spend time with and like just has jokes sometimes, but it's also 
really dark and really frank with grappling with this really intense subject matter. Um, I find it fascinating. It's a hard watch. Like it's, I think nine episodes of aired at this point, I wouldn't recommend like watching all of them at once. Um, but I'm really grateful for it. And I haven't, I didn't see Michaela Cole's previous show, Chewing Gum. So I'm so glad to like have her voice out there. It feels like this is such a big breakthrough for her that she's going to go on to many, many huge things from here. Um, David and Patrick, you guys have also watched it. Where have you guys landed on I May Destroy You? Uh, or just speaking of Michaela Cole's future, it does feel like she could inherit the Phoebe Waller Bridge mantle for, you know, that's the, that kind of sensation. Phoebe Waller Bridge Phoebe Waller Bridge is, she started dating Martin McDonough, it was all over for her. What um, the hell? Really, she, really, she put her name on. Three billboards is not that bad. She put her no, name uh, on uh, run. Which, three billboards uh, is that bad. And I actually did no, not mean, oh. I did not mean <laughs> to take a pot shot at Phoebe Waller Bridge. However, I believe she might actually deserve them after Run and especially the later seasons of Killing Eve. Uh, wow. She's not involved wow. with the She's later seasons of Killing, Killing Eve. Either. Well, maybe she should have been. I wish uh, her all the best. I look hey, forward David, to seeing the James what? Bond movie she wrote. That's not what we're talking about. Multiple British women who wrote their own no, TV there shows can only and be, them can exist in the world. There can only yeah. be one at a time, I'm afraid, as I believe. It's <laughs> no, like they're like Highlanders, um, and I believe that uh, I may destroy you proves that. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel very outside of the experience of this show in, in virtually all ways, but I've found it, especially as it sort of spiraled away from its central conceit. Although that's always, you know, in the background, the core of what's happening. It, it sort of rots into um, all of the the drama throughout the show. Uh, I found it fascinating. I was trying to put a, a finger on what I connected to most about it. Um, and I think it's really smart about how people in this day and age interpolate their own pain and how they sort of live with it and explore it and express it in a sort of sort of an arena where everyone is trying to do the same. Um, and you see that in... Uh, the main character, uh, Annabella, that's her name, right? Arabella. Arabella. I knew that. I was like, I wanted to say Amabella. <laughs> Am- <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, the, uh, you know, I, you see that in sort of explosive bouts of narcissism, particularly Katie in an episode that I don't think you've watched that. And then the ninth episode, um, which is really sort of all about her social media presence and really a, a manic and self-involved way, um, and leads to interesting places. But in so many regards, I mean, and it seems like, how you know you see the Kwame character and how he navigates uh, he's a gay man living in London London and he navigates a, a heterosexual encounter in uh, the seventh episode or eighth episode I believe um, and even in the flashback episode which comes out of nowhere and is really striking uh, but it's also incredible for how spontaneous and alive the show feels even though I know from what little I've read about Michaela Cole at this point that her writing process is, you know, iterative to the extreme and that there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of drafts that she shares with her, uh, her writing team. And, yeah. You don't you feel know, like it's improvised, even though I agree with you that it does feel spontaneous and alive, but in it, a way uh, that a lot of that, the, the no, like so little TV too. does, I mean, it really feels like these people are, I don't know, for lack of a better language, sort of just existing in, in the world. Is there a um, specific moment that comes to mind that you feel like is... Really, all of it. It's just the way they interact. I mean, it's the moments that don't feel that way that stick out. The more obviously written moments, I think, of like the 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 more forced jokes, the audition scene from, I believe, the second episode where a friend is trying out for um, a very stupid, uh, meant to be stupid, uh, advertising campaign. Um and but but I think for the most part it just 
And, and it is one of those things that also always sort of defies expectations without feeling overly forced about doing so. There's an episode where she goes to visit her boyfriend would be way too hard of a, a term, but, uh, goes to visit her Italian, sometimes lover, Biagio, uh, that, that ends in a way that feels true to their dynamic, but, um, is not something that I think another TV show would attempt in the same way. I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it, it's very compelling and, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily feel equipped to speak to it, but I, I can highly recommend it to anyone, especially as Katie was saying, just to wrap up uh, my tirade anyway, um, that while it, it does center around uh, an incident of sexual assault, the show is constantly revisiting and sort of orbiting, and I imagine will be resolved in some fashion. And this is a, an incident that is pulled from Michaelico's own life. It's something that occurred to her, I believe, during uh, the end of writing Chewing Gum. And she is a writer on the show, and it is in part kind of about this writer's mentality, although at a pace that I don't think any of us can relate to because she's writing a book and has an amount of leeway and uh, petty cash to spend that uh, is beyond all of us uh, And yet the way writers. that she blows her deadlines in the first Very relatable. Uh, no, stress me out. No, like yeah, crazy. I, I, was yeah. Like, I was like, just turn it in, turn it in, stop lying to people, you got to do this. Yeah, so although also... writer speaking here. Well, there are some very, you know, sobering and unrelated, uh, unrelatable things for me anyway in that first episode. Um, the speed at which she does meet her deadline, even if the what she writes she doesn't remember writing, it was in a drug fueled state, and uh, is kind of that, that is remarkable. <laughs> that does not sound relatable to me at all. I was like, I no, cannot yeah. believe this episode ended with you turning in finished work. Who would um, Danny and then? Yeah. <laughs> you guys also feel like I do watching, especially the first episode where it's like pretty lighthearted, and she's out in the town, and you're just like, what's it like to be like young and like. I don't know. Oh my god! I was just gonna say that. It was like, like that's the part that. that, like, I was like, I can't relate to this at all. This no. like, does, does she strike you as? I mean, obviously, I she's she's drugged in the first episode, and um, she, you know, the rape that she experiences is, is someone put something in her drink, um, and the show doesn't necessarily encourage you to, to guess as to who that might have been. They show flashes of a guy whose face is impossible to distinguish. Kind of changes over time. Um, I do find myself sometimes. You might, your brain naturally trying to create order has a list of suspects and I think gun to my head I would I would tell you I, th- I think I know who did it but it's not that kind of show um, yeah but, and it's also one of the very few white characters in the entire yes, show yes but uh, sh- there is something it's not that the vibe I got even the you know her drugging aside was not a sort of like youthful capriciousness so much as like a hyper online sense of damage control like they all are kind of spiraling um, sure and yeah, I didn't. And none of it was enviable to me, other than you know, in all, in, it just seemed like work. I mean, even Kwame, who is um, on Grinder all the time and is constantly being pulled into uh, you know one night trysts and has a terrible abusive experience of his own at a certain point, um, it, it it always felt like work. It always felt raw and vulnerable and not just a kind of like we're young YOLO, <laughs> like we're, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. And the more, I think it's very yeah. responsible and thoughtful about the way it depicts that, uh, which maybe is why I automatically went into my like middle-aged parent mode, being like, oh, "Who can handle that?" But like their time in Italy seems kind of fun, in like the second episode. Which which says? In the when they're in Italy, when it's uh, oh yeah, uh, Arabella and uh, Terry, and they're in this amazing like paid for apartment uh, in Italy, and then they just go out and do a bunch of drugs. Uh, yeah, but I think it's like fun. kind of what you're speaking to as being you know 
we're all in our mid thirties and, and you're, you're watching it as the mother of two young children and wondering what, you know, life is going to be like for them when they're in their twenties. Um, Oof. but I think that is something that all the characters in the show are struggling with. Like none of them, they're all struggling to be adept at conversing in this new vernacular, the technology and socially and all these things that are converging. But even someone like, uh, like any of these characters who are all, you know, very quick witted and smart and, um, to varying degrees of successful, um, and seem as like they, they have the, the whole way of things as much in control as anyone could. They're all lost in their own palpable ways. Uh, and I think one of the great strengths of the show is that it doesn't let any of them get too comfortable. It, like they've never really sort of mastered the moment and are meant to be, it's not like sex in the city where you're just like, here are these, these women who are, uh, stomping across Manhattan with their stilettos and have that's what I was the, the whole city about. under their control. Your, your two's opinion about this, just like, uh, I think the naturalism that you're speaking to is really evident from the, from minute one. And we already made the comparison to girls. Um, but I wonder how you think Michaela Cole, just through the perspective or through the experience, um, how, how does it complicate what girls says about young people? How does it complicate what, um, like, is, is it shaking up girls? Is it, is it addressing girls? I don't know. It feels like a successor to that show in some way, not necessarily like the friendship, the way that, girls felt like uh the successor to sex in the city that's not how the show feels but i'm wondering if it, it's like addressing that show in some way there's a real craft to this show that i found missing in girl i mean girl because girls feels like it's more of a conscious successor to something like sex in the city and it's an answer to that for a different generation this feels self-possessed in a way that girls never did to me obviously lena dunham you know had a big personality that was all over that show but this you know audiovisually i mean every part of the show feels like a sensation i mean it really feels mercurial and alive and and just a, a lot more for lack of a better term cinematic uh, than girls ever did yeah, I in mean, a way that like, British television tends to, for some. Well, they reason. they take their time, and this is not you know we'll be talking a lot about content uh, before they know the word content, especially before we start recording. But this is a show that managed to puncture that sort of constant low drone of new content out there because it does feel so meticulous and created, and um, and and not you know to Katie's point, I, I don't know if this sort of craft necessarily always goes hand in hand with not wanting to binge watch, but it does feel so dense in its construction that it would be overwhelming to, to watch in that fashion. Yeah. Watch. I made a story. You it's worth it. Katie, do you have more you want to say about it? Uh, I feel no. like I was doing a lot of talking. No, I mean, I, I, it's been a couple of weeks since I had watched it and, and really dove in and I don't want to spill too much for anybody. Um, but I, you know, in terms of like, feeling like you're in the hands of a very distinctive storyteller. Um, and, and, you know, for me, for not having seen chewing gum, like a new storyteller to me, um, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a, not an escape exactly, but it is an interesting revelation of someone else's brain. I, I hope that Michaela Cole gets to continue to create. I think it's, we keep talking. I can't about, imagine she won't. I know, but like, we keep talking about girls and like, what happened to Lena Dunham? Can't to, like make her, I know, I know. <laughs> it really did. book. She wrote yeah, a book. Um, Lena Dunham was, I think, enmeshed 
like, you know, with, with wet sand around her legs in the internet in a way that hopefully mm. Michaela Cole is not going to have to be. Um, and Lena Dunham, you know, the creator became weighed down by Lena Dunham, the lightning rod, the persona. And I, I, I don't think she's done. I mean, she's what, like barely 30 years old and she's still friends with Taylor Swift, which is more than any of us could ever hope to accomplish in our lives. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I, it's a different, a different can of worms. Seven days a week. Wet ass pussy. Make that pullout game weak. So for our mini segment tonight, we're going to talk a little about, I guess, the, the downfall of physical media. But I'm, I'm raising an eyebrow here, wondering if this mm. is a big deal or not. There was a report on the uh, – I think it's a British site called the Digital Bits. Um, that Digital I Bits, guess, is, I do not believe, is a British site. It's like it's the not, go-to site for physical media that I used to – during the HD, DVD, Blu-ray wars, I would consult several times a day. Well, let me say this. It's British in the sense that, like, all things were British. Sure, sure, sure. It was born in Britain. It just um, uh, hides its accent. Digital yes. Bits. <laughs> anyway, the Digital Bits is reporting. The digital Bits knows their physical media shit. And the Digital Bits is reporting that Disney, which owns uh, so much now, right? Uh, Marvel and Lucasfilm and Pixar and all of Fox back catalog. Um, they, uh, they're they not going to make uh, 4K discs or blu-ray discs anymore they're going to stop kind of all around 4k uhd discs i'm pretty sure that is going to mean just like general blu-rays because that's the direction of all physical media right now going 4k upgrades um it just seems like disney is done in the physical media realm for the foreseeable future which probably means uh the future in general what does it mean that we're like the biggest studio on the planet that owns so so much i mean the place that revolutionized the the disney vault and became a staple of home video luring people back to reissues time and time again is going to put an end to to physical media and and this thing that many people still covet but not that many people because, I mean, my God, the kids I talked to today don't even own Blu-ray players. They don't own machines. That they do, though. It's called, Unless you it's, buy a PS5. They all own a, Blu-ray players. Blu-ray. It's built into their PlayStation 4 just as it was built into their PlayStation 3. I sure, but no – I mean more and more people are, are not – are not they're not buying that, that equipment for this purpose. They I mean, may the not point, be buying The point is no one in the streaming – after the streaming revolution – Fewer and fewer people are going to physical media to, to watch their movies. So, what does it mean, uh, Dave? What are your What are your thoughts here? What's your reaction to the end of 4K Blu-rays at Disney? <laughs> well, I'm sad that the because it really is more of like the physical disc media thing. All of the streaming access thing. Oh, this article mentioned this article on the playlist says that they're still going to do. 4K discs for new theatrical releases, Marvel movies, Star Wars movies, Pixar movies, and Disney animated films. So really it's looking at like things 
that I was worried about back when we were hearing about this sale, which is like the 4K restoration of Alien uh, that, you know, went around. And though, right as I'm thinking about that, lo and behold, this article says, also the report claims that James Cameron still holds the power thanks to Avatar and Disney could end up doing some cam- more Cameron films on 4K to help promote the new sequels in the future. So it seems like James Cameron also maybe had the key to, to physical media. This isn't great, but I think the places that it's like really going to hurt is the 20th Century Fox back catalog that either has been restored already and hasn't been released in 4K UHD or that was like on the docket to get like a restoration because I don't know that much about Disney's film restoration program that they have one. They have great animation restoration and um, archiving programs. But in terms of like making something look beautiful, uh, a lot of these like re-restored films, uh, the 4K UHD version is going to be the best version that you could ever physically own. I mean, to be clear, they, the already, the they already issued a Dark Phoenix 4K UHD disc. What that's is, right. What, that's true. What else do we need? <laughs> well, I think it's more about also just like the ability of I don't think all movies necessarily need to be in 4K UHD um and then a lot of them I think can't because even if you have like an older DVD copy that's going to be the highest scan of a working negative we're ever going to get out of like that sort of film restoration. But this is like sad because it's not like we're even going to we're missing the step that I felt was better with something in the transition to like iTunes, which is like if I wanted to own it at some period of time, I'd have access to a data file that would represent that piece of media, whether or not I had the legal right to copy it or not. I had that data file on my hard drive. Uh, streaming has sort of made that uh, kind of impossible. So really I'm worried the most here not so much about my own personal library because I brought bought Criterion 11, so I have all the Godzilla Toho films, and I'm pretty much good to go on physical media for the rest of my life. But uh, like <laughs> that's future all, that's restorations, all you need. yeah, yeah, exactly. Future what about the uh, the new Agnes Varda complete box set? Highly recommended. Just to give a plug in for physical media while you're talking. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I think. Anybody who sees this as another step towards the death of physical media is correct, but I think those people, we've already raised the alarm to start hoarding your physical media on this podcast a couple of times. This just seems like a step in that direction, but because it's whatever Disney owns, we're losing the capability of like revivals and restorations. You know, and we also, I mean, say. all that stuff is is awful and rightly taken to task, but uh, we talk about... We talk about physical media almost exclusively in terms of movies, but I think one thing that we often overlook is that uh, physical media, DVDs and Blu-rays, were one of a fandom's great ways to support a show that they loved in a meaningful way uh, and to help it keep going. Now, in this age of content, where things are going to be canceled as soon as they aren't driving new subscribers, and very few, if any, of your favorite shows are going to get longer orders because like once they've served out their initial hype, you know, then they've, they've blown out, et cetera, um, without the ability to 
put your money where your mouth is and buy, you know, every season of Mad Men on Blu-ray and give AMC the ancillary dollars they need to understand they should keep making more of the show, I think you will find that fans have less and less of a voice in terms of what is uh, not made, but what what is greenlit for additional seasons. So the next time your favorite new Netflix show is canceled after two seasons, um, blame it in part on the decline of physical media. I mean, that goes for movies, too. We wouldn't have uh, The Spy of Shagney if people hadn't bought yeah, Austin Powers DVDs out of it's the true. wazoo. We wouldn't. And then by extension, we wouldn't have Goldmember. You know, we wouldn't know that he loves gold. Would we even know comedy if <laughs> we people would. hadn't had we, DVDs? We would all be quoting the love gold. guru to each other because that's all we had. <laughs> uh, how many uh, – raise your hand if you own a 30 Rock box set. Uh <laughs> DVD. You, uh, I wonder if I still have it. I, I feel I, like everyone I went ooh. to college with owned Thirty Rock on DVD. If I, I might have at one time, but I don't think I do anymore. Yeah, I definitely had Thirty Rock in the office on DVD. Uh, I mean, I still have. I do still have the Sex in the City complete series on DVD, and like a pink. Oh, I was about to say it's a big binder. pink box, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, big pink. I, you know, a lot of people who have that. Oh yeah. I'm not sure I'll ever get rid of it. It's like I, no, I'm too sentimentally. I think I'm too sentimentally attached. It looks good. On a big Does wall, it? in your basement, in a box, in your basement, a box <laughs> in a box. Um, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I on one hand, yes, the the, the DVD market. I, I lament the fact that we don't get to see the highest quality versions of all the things that we love. I thought this about uh, Game of Thrones in the final season. Like watching it streaming on HBO Go is not. The, the highest quality version of this show that exists. HBO and, Go was a real piece of crap. And, and we have HBO and Max. really see Game of Thrones in the way it was meant to be seen? Not many people. Um, and yet, like, who owns the equipment? To, I don't own a 4K TV. I probably should. My TV is really old. Um, yeah, mine too. But it's an investment. Like, it's a big deal to have to buy this shit. Um, and more and more, it's 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 cumbersome to figure out how to play the highest quality media. It's and easy. We're, this is the VHS versus Betamax. Sure. And as we go forward, I mean, on a different track, I think uh, you'll find that the most reliable way to get your hands on older movies uh, is going to be piracy. Because I think that you know, the emphasis on new content and getting new subscribers is going to be supreme. And then you'll have the uh, millennial and Gen Z obsessives, that, the favorites that are always uh, getting, you know, bought for increasingly ridiculous amounts, your friends and the offices and whatnot. Uh, but then older movies are are going to cease to be a commodity and I they're going to need to survive somehow. And I think it'll be a lot of under the table trading. Um, I don't know. I mean, but I, you know, the, I, I mean, know that the Criterion Collection still makes the vast majority of their money from Blu-ray well, sales. Boutique. I mean, this is a, this is a story that I've wanted to tell on some publication at some point. Don't steal this, um, but like, it, does Blu-ray, does 4K disc become the new vinyl? Can it be? I don't. I don't think. Um, the way vinyl emerged where it's like, hey, I could have a record player in my house. Wait, are you talking about vinyl the medium or vinyl the canceled HBO show? Uh, I'm talking about vinyl the medium, but uh, can can Blu-ray become that one season HBO show by Martin Scorsese? That's a different question. Um, no, I, I guess I just wonder if, if Blue, I mean, or is it already on the, its way? Does Criterion, does Arrow do all these boutique 
um, physical uh, media I, I think to turn, an extent. turn it into vinyl? The, and could it ever – I mean the problem is Blu-ray players don't look as cool as the – Record player in your house, David, specifically. Yes, but as long as we think that now, as long as people have them, you know, Sony, you know, obviously has a vested interest in the viability of Blu-ray, and as if they are going to bake it into the cake for the next console generation, which they are in PlayStation Five. I mean, it's another five to ten years of Blu-rays being in Blu-ray players anyway, being in hundreds of billions of homes. So, you know, the, it's it's still going to be worth Criterion's while to, to make them. They're still going to be available. They already are uh, a niche item, but movies themselves are increasingly going to become a niche item. So, you know, uh, it, but the whole, I mean, for me, I agree with what Patch just said at the very, very top of the segment, which is that this may not be as big a deal as people are making it out to be. Um, but the bigger story was and remains for me that not just Disney, but all of these companies who now have all of their interest in their streaming services are going to gobble up content. And the whole world is the Disney vault now where they're just going to let things peak out uh, if and when they so choose to freshen up their lineup. But your access to these films, short of renting them on iTunes, I suppose, and variable qualities. I mean, iTunes movies that I spend $4 to rent often look like shit. Uh, and of course not every movie can be found there, but, um, yeah, I mean, your access to the movies are, are not going to the on demand era um, is yeah. over. It's true. Um, you know, and everyone, you know, we have had conversations very recently about the elitism of the movie going experience. And, and I think people are going to start to recognize how, um, well, I do believe the movie should be for everyone. It should be accessible. Um, that these saviors, you know, everyone's like, just, you know, everything is just Netflix now. And like, they are not your friends. They do not have your best interest in art. Um, they are going to steal away the control that you thought and the, and the convenience that you thought they were supplying you. Um, or maybe you'll just stop giving a shit about the art of all of this, and it'll just probably be the latter sitting in front of your couch and watching 50 episodes of Terrace House over the course of six days. Okay, so if you'll permit me a little bit of a monologue and then I'll turn it over because this is going to be a broader conversation than it initially seems. A couple months ago on the podcast, maybe one of our first pandemic check-ins, I talked about uh, getting into the very popular Japanese reality show, Terrace House, which uh, several seasons of which are streaming on Netflix now. Uh, Terrace House, just uh, for those of you who don't know, is sort of like an ultra-polite version of the real world. It's like, imagine if you know, people stop getting polite and start getting <laughs> even more polite. Um, you know, every, everyone on the show is, or most people on the show anyway, are unfailingly nice and sweet and genuine. They are, they are it's, it's not presented this way, but it is essentially a dating show. They are in the house. They're all but one person I can think of came to the house a single. 
looking for love. They can leave the house at any time. One thing that makes the show different from most reality shows is that they are encouraged and expected to continue their regular lives while they live in the house together, three boys and three girls. Um, they, you know, someone is uh, trained to be a ballet dancer. Another person is going to school four days a week and someone's a professional snowboarder and they have all these various things that are going on. They have access to their phones at all times and the show airs while they're still living in the house. Uh, this will all be relevant later. Anyway, um, Tara's house is, uh, has been a great bomb to me over the, the past couple of months and especially over the last like 10 days or so when I've been on vacation and I've been binge watching this show like I've never been watched anything before in my life. And I'm not saying that in the Trumpian sense. It is actually true. I have been uh, absolutely mainlining. I think I watched the entirety of Tara's house, Boys and Girls in the City. And I've now moved on to, I've seen the first like 27 episodes already. You have a kid. Right? I, do, I do have a kid. It's uh, he, has, he has seen a lot of Terrace House with me. But uh, the, the, we were on vacation. You know, you can watch a lot of Terrace House between the hours of 8 p.m. and 1 a.m. Um, but, uh, and then I watch it with him at 7 a.m. when he wakes up. Uh, but... Um, so, so it's been very soothing to me. There's something very calming about the show. It's something that people like about it. It doesn't have the usual flow of a reality show. Um, I think a large part of that is due to one simple factor, which is that it's almost entirely filmed in locked off shots. There's almost no handheld camera work. It took me like an entire season to figure out and put my finger on what was so different and soothing about the way the show was shot. Uh, but that is, I think, a big part of it. Um, but... Uh, and I've just, I really enjoyed it. However, watching Terrace House, binge watching Terrace House, there has been a voice in the back of my head, um, something that I think I may have alluded to in the show a couple months ago, something terrible that uh, happened uh, in the middle of the most recent season of Terrace House. Um, and uh, a very ironic tragedy to befall this show, the show that uh, features far and away the nicest, purest of heart, uh, most supportive cast you'll ever find in a reality show. And the one time I got really emotional watching the show was because of just the genuine magic Mike XXL, like a vibe of support and kindness between the housemates. Um, on the most recent season of Terrace House, the 1919-1920 show, uh, the show is usually filmed for a year and people can leave at any time. Um, and then they're instantly replaced by a new person of the same gender. Uh, I haven't seen the, this season of the show quite yet, but a girl named Hannah Kimura uh, was goaded by the producers or so the accusation is, although I find that very believable um, to instigate a fight that her heart wasn't necessarily in and fights are few and far between on Terrace house. But uh, there was a bit of a spat. I think she may have hit in some capacity a, uh, another castmate uh, on the show. Um, the cyber bullying that followed was really intense. Uh, when the show split up because of quarantine, because of the pandemic and everybody went to quarantine, she committed suicide. Um, and her mom has been on a, a crusade against Fuji TV, which produces Terrace House, co-produces it along with Netflix. Um, and uh, the cyber bullies who had targeted her daughter, she's working with the Japanese courts to identify the actual individuals uh, behind the various Twitter accounts or whatever they were, which I imagine were anonymous, um, to sort of unmask them and bring them to rights. Uh, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. And uh, before I open this up and sort of explain what I want to talk about, I think all of us today in this day and age understand that, especially, you know, after watching something like Unreal, um, or really just applying basic critical thinking to the things we consume on television, that there is uh, 
really no such thing. And this is, you know, documentary filmmaking 101. There's no such thing as objective documentary cinema. Everything is manipulated to some extent. And in reality shows, that is often more the rule than the exception. I think in Terrace House, that can sometimes be hard to see the forest for the trees because the aesthetic of the show is so naturalistic and people genuinely appear to be themselves in a way that creates some kind of cognitive dissonance with with what you're watching. Uh, And then they have a a group of panelists they cut to every 10 minutes or show to mercilessly rag on and commentate on uh, what they watched, uh, which only strengthens the idea that what you're watching is true. Um, You can tell that they only shoot really during a couple times a day. And that's so much, so much happens when they're not shooting. Uh, It's a very PG show and you'll come back to a couple who you like see furtively holding hands in one episode and the next episode they're like, yeah, we had sex. And you're like, what? You had sex first of all. Um, And then you had sex in this house. I mean, it's, it's, it's this very strange dichotomy, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that it's unique among reality TV shows in that what you're seeing is is manipulated to some degree and that the people who are on the show are um, maybe more naive and looking for different things and purer of heart, but they are goaded into doing things that they wouldn't necessarily do themselves. Watching the show, I obviously feel um, an ethical quandary of some kind where I every uh, the enjoyment that it's bringing me in this very like good natured and innocent way is clouded by the knowledge that the show was responsible for this terrible, at least responsible to some capacity for this terrible thing that happened in a season that I haven't gotten to yet. I have been trying to wrestle as I watch it with whether or not this is a problem endemic to reality TV as a whole, or if this is something uniquely evil or mean-spirited about Tara's house. Um, and I, the conclusion that I've sort of come to at the moment, and I'm still negotiating it with like how selfish this is, how self-serving this is, I don't know, is that this is the problem that's sort of endemic to, to reality television. I do think that Japan, and this is something that I've sort of been, you know, at least from the outside in tune with since watching like serial experiments lane in the late nineties has a really pronounced problem with cyberbullying that obviously uh, has fed into a lot of what's happening with the show. But I, I don't know, I guess if this could have happened on any show, if it's unique to Terrace house. And so I just want to, with that long preamble, open up the floor to talk about sort of the ethics of reality television, whether we are knowingly, when we watch it and you watch them like the bachelor or something like that, or if you're knowingly engaging in something that you, if it's important for you to understand the extent to which the people on the shows have put themselves forward for this treatment, if it's different in something like Terrace house, because a lot of them are very young and not that we don't have young reality TV stars in the United States, but they're like still in school. They're just trying to find their path in life. Um, it's a little bit more vulnerable and unguarded. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a bit of a wrestling match every time I watch the show, which I unambiguously enjoy um, and has really been one of the bright spots for me at quarantine, but I can't help but question if I'm helping to perpetuate something less than Can I, I ask you a question about the enjoyment you get out of Terrace yeah. House? What is it that you enjoy so much about it as opposed to anything else you could watch that makes it feel worth all of these ethical quandaries? Like, I can't think of a reality show that I have enjoyed watching enough to not think about that stuff you mentioned and continue well, watching Well, it's it. strange just because it's so contrary to the feeling you get watching Terrace House. I mean, it's such a, like, so little happens on the show. It really is just about, like, young, beautiful people hanging out together in a young, beautiful house, being young. You know that what we were talking about in terms of uh, um, I May Destroy You, that we sort of 
agreed was a little bit more complicated, but, you know, you're alluding to the like youthful capriciousness of, of like, this is what that show is. That's people in ranging from 18 to like 31 uh, living in a house together, working together, going on dates, uh, very innocent dates and, and camping uh, trips and uh, just living in this sort of bubble where it almost feels like they're quarantined because so much of the show takes place in the house, but it's such a, like there, there's just a really pleasant feeling of like being at the height of one's life while watching it. And it's relaxing and the characters are really winsome. I mean, um, they engage sometimes with how they're putting on certain personalities for the the camera. Um, There's a very scandalous turn of events in the boys and girls in the city season towards the end where you realize that, or some of the characters confess that they've been doing things off camera um, that they've been trying to act around while on camera. But uh, a part of the show that is so fascinating is, is this dialectic between what is authentic and the show itself is dealing with that on one level. And all the people on the show are dealing with that on another level as they're all, grappling with uh, their TV personas that they're then, you know, in sort of an, uh, you know, uh, infinity, what's the expression? Like, like, sort of like the house of mirrors, you know, when they're on the show, watching older episodes on the show that have just aired of themselves on the show. And they come onto the sh- like new people come onto the show, knowing the cast members are about to meet from the show they've been watching. And it, it's all very, um, to wor- use a word that I've already used like five times in this episode, very negotiated in, in how they're they're figuring out also not just their their TV identities, but also their real identities, who they want to be in life. It's very much a show, not just about love, but about motivating each other to become the people that they aspire to be, to following their dreams. And typically, as soon as someone has a great success or a failure, they will voluntarily leave the show um, as if that they've understood that they've completed their arc in some capacity. Um, and it's just the the idea of this horrible thing piercing that bubble, that very carefully created bubble is just very counterintuitive to the feeling I get watching it. I mean, like, like the, the people just, I don't know. It just, it's very strange. Um, and discordant it obviously triggers my morbid curiosity to eventually watch that, that season and sort of sift through it. I mean, that's you're, you're hitting it on the head there, right? Like, the voyeurism of reality television is like hearing gossip. It's like hearing, it's like peering into something you, you, you're not supposed to. Your, your morbid curiosity is what's being but it doesn't lured feel, in here. It doesn't feel salacious watching it. It doesn't feel like I watch Below Deck is the other reality show that I watch. And I watch Below Deck, you know, knowing that it's trash and sort of, you know, cringing at the horrors that befall the, the chef in this episode and wanting to sneer at the, the rich guests who take advantage or take for granted the service of people around them and so forth. On Terrace House, you really care about these people and you want what's best for them, um, some of them anyway. And in the rare instances, like there was one character I've seen on Terrace House so far, maybe two, but one in particular, who I thought that is a reality TV show villain. And nobody liked her. And then uh, she posted, I, you know, I was just 
checking up on these people on Instagram. And she posted a long rambling video about how George Floyd was part of a government psyop and like secretly a porn actor and he's still alive. And I was like, oh, like all of my feelings about you were totally valid. <laughs> and uh, that still seems like. Spying. Yes. I mean, yes. Uh, like you're yes. still describing like. Like I like reading advice columns both for the, like the shitty people and for the like seemingly like for the heroes. Like it's all like poking in on other people's lives. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, let me, I just want to chime in here for a second. One, I want to say, you know, we're talking about a serious topic here. So if you or anyone listening to this, um, if you or anyone you know is considering suicide or is anxious, depressed, you know, the National Suicide Prevention Line, the Crisis Text Line, all of that information, Googleable right now. Um, just consider that. And the other thing is, you know, the fact that someone died from suicide on the show i mean it's it's such a such a sensitive topic i I just i want to make sure i want people to know that we're taking that really seriously as we talk about this um but yeah i gotta say like beyond that let's 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 take that event out of it um this is something you know what you're talking about here is what people have discovered in the trenches of YouTube and TikTok and on and on being on Instagram, like the parasocial relationships that people have formed. It's all manipulative. Even when there aren't crews of people working on reality shows, you know, on Terrace House, as authentic as you think it feels, people are still making the filmmaking choices. This is not a Frederick Weissman documentary, okay? This is not like fly on the wall. They're still manipulating you in this way and they're still treating these people as characters, no matter how much these people buy in and they agree to be on the show, well, it becomes they're still, like they're does, still becoming the fiction of television. Is the veneer of authenticity uh, immoral in some way? Because it it more and more as time goes on, I think the my answer is almost yes. Like, um, I I don't know. It, it, as a game show fanatic, I've professed this love on on the podcast before game shows feel fine submit to the challenge like run the gauntlet of american gladiator every night on pluto tv um around 24 7 those people know what Um, they signed up for that floor is lava exactly that that that's a competition that feels like undergo something silly for our amusement this is that the olympics is the same way the Olympics, fine. <laughs> Undergo something <laughs> silly for monster. our enjoyment. Jesus but is it, is um, it's foolish. The Olympics but, is like I, a lifelong pursuit. The Flores Lava is not like the Olympics. Asking actually, people to live their life, asking people to live their life on camera as if it, it can be real is – I mean people will submit to it obviously because they get paid. They get the exposure. But the pro- – like what – I don't. I don't know. You're, you're making this deal with the devil or something to to do this to people. You know it's wrong. Like we know it's wrong. I, 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 and we know it fucks people up every time. And we know that people who watch the show gravitate. Okay, but that's what I want to talk in a, like a, in a parasocial. We know that when we submit these people to the audience, that but that I there think is the a select is- amount of audience who's going to go extreme and they're going to attach themselves on Instagram. They're going to go beyond like. it's submitting people to the celebrity. What I'm saying is I don't know. I, 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 I don't know to what extent that is unique to reality television in our world. I think that, you know, uh, you know, I I don't know to what extent, you know, I, I mentioned that I think the veneer of authenticity might make Terrace house uniquely um, uh, conducive to radicalizing people who are watching to really think that they're watching the unvarnished, unmediated truth on their screens uh, and might react accordingly and become very personally invested and, and potentially cyberbully someone. But beyond that, I don't know to what extent, A, that's unique to this show among reality shows, and B, 
to what extent it's unique reality shows at all? Because, you know, Taylor Swift, <laughs> like you see the way that, that any fandom these days, I mean, Taylor Swift is another person who seems like such a, you know, is someone who I enjoy unironically and whose music I think is very pure and she's very candid in the writing of it. And the fans seem completely disconnected from whatever message she's putting out there and are toxic. Not all of them, of course, or even most of them, but a certain minority. When you have that many fans in this day and age, a portion of them statistically are going to be uh, maniacs. And um, if you tweet something negative about Taylor Swift, and I don't necessarily recommend you do mostly because it's not warranted. She's a great artist, but uh, you will, uh, you know, there was our friend Sam Adams was doxxed last week or at least attempted to uh, for making a not even, I mean, the writer who wrote the pitchfork review, which gave it an 8.0 out of 10, a very respectable score that is often reserved for some of the best albums. No, but regardless um, is uh, <laughs> it was, was, harassed to the extreme by fan. I mean, it's, it's really this. But what are you, what is your argument here that because the fans are bad, that the, the, the reality TV, that the creation is acceptable. No, that because other fans are bad in other places. No, I just wonder, you know, so Terrace house was its season was, as as you might expect, it was immediately canceled. It was already on hiatus because of the pandemic. It was immediately canceled when Hanukkah committed suicide the future of the show itself is in jeopardy and that is perfectly understandable um from a business and societal perspective i guess i just with without and, and hopefully not you know downplaying the uh, tragedy that's happened here um or being glib about it um i just i it as i watch terrace house obsessively i can't help but wonder you know if if that could have happened on another show but also what it says about the interaction between a show and its audience or a property. And I think the problem, audience. I think the problem is there's nothing dividing the person from the obsession of fans in the case of reality TV. I, you know, I, I mentioned last week that I've been watching the last dance. This is going to sound maybe like a weird tangent, I guess, but, um, you know, Mike, Michael Jordan, is that his name? Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, Michael Jordan, uh, talks a lot in the documentary just about the fandom, about the about how people would create rumors about him, how the press would go apeshit about every little movie made, his gambling addictions, uh, his father's murder. Like, was it uh, part of his gambling addiction? All these myths that were born out of his fame, um, and part of and and so many people loved him, adored him that it turned dark. Uh, but the thing. The shield that was up for Michael Jordan this whole time and why he was able to kind of go back to work and go back to the game was his play, was how great a basketball player he was. It was always like that was a shield, I think, how his talent was a shield. And with Taylor Swift, like as toxic as the fandom gets, this is it's not on Taylor to to figure this out. Uh, and, and right. She can't and, just and music. Like- will, she Always can't just tweet like fun. everyone needs to get Calm my name down. out of their mouths and, and stop harassing people on my behalf because right. that will probably kick up more of a hornet's nest than I mean, and, I and, then, to... and then people will come after Taylor Swift when she does something wrong. But the, at, at the end of the day, the talent of these diff- this, of artists, of sports stars, of whoever is a divide between this. But when you're a reality star, you have nothing but yourself. That is why but people the, have invested I mean, in you. the person. In this particular case, Hanukkah Mora is, is was a professional athlete. She was a professional wrestler who was famous for that. Um, and, you know, obviously, 
this the, the reaction from uh, she got, was received much wider exposure being on Terrace House than she had beforehand. But I do think you're right that like a layer of skin is removed when you're not just dealing with a character you're performing in the ring, but uh, you know, however mediated your images on the reality TV show, it's definitely like people are talking about you. But I, I think also, you know, I think to a much lesser extent, fortunately, I think we've all experienced cyberbullying to some degree. And it seems, you know, a, 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 fact of modern life to a degree, which is not my way of saying, you know, it's fine. It, this is just life. Suck it up. Terrace house should continue. Um, but how do we I mean, deal we definitely with pass the threshold, right? If you get even moderately popular in any yeah. capacity, yeah. you get dragged. Like how, how do we, how do we, and I think that the, the fact that the contestants are still on the show and on Twitter, which is so unlike what you get from American reality show, obviously exacerbates that in a way that may be too dangerous to sustain. But um, it is something that I think people can relate to uh, who are not on reality TV to some degree. Dave, I'm sorry, you were going to pipe in. You have some experience in this field, not in the cyberbullying uh, reality. Uh, not in the cyberbullying field, but like uh, I feel like the the problem with when reality TV it, like comes up against these real world issues is no matter what the category of reality TV, if we separate it from documentary, then the goal of reality TV is still to tell really compelling, but simple story. So the reality, when we make reality TV, the television part sucks the nuance out of the reality part and that's the thing that audiences don't aren't conscious of happening. If you're watching a movie, if you're watching Bruce Willis be Die Hard, it's hard to make an argument. If you're watching Bruce Willis be Die Hard, Play, he's playing John Die Hard. Yeah, right? John Die Hard. If you watch a Bruce no. Willis as John Die Hard, you know that uh, you know John Die Hard. Uh, you know, supposedly lives a life outside of the story, but you kind of don't care. You have these movies as evidence with reality TV. You assume, and then, like you said, this show even admits a lot of times there's stuff off camera, and you know, yet it still tries to keep this idea that it's more real by allowing them to, you know, see the show and react to that, and then, you know, follow down the rabbit hole of being on social media the whole time. But the reality is, it's all the same wide shots that are capturing everything, and what airs is someone's decision, and that person on the best days on the best reality TV shows is also thinking about the well-being of the star. But the first thing they're thinking about is delivering the story of whatever that episode or season is. Are they thinking and, about the well-being of the star? Uh, that's why I said the, uh, for the, on the best shows on the best, right. uh, you know, <laughs> under ideal circumstances I, yeah. they are. But uh, the, what everybody's thinking about, even if it's a bad, sh- poorly run show or whatnot is how to get to that next story point, what it's going to be, who needs to say what, to make that happen and it's manipulative, but it's also, it robs serious situations like cyberbullying and suicide of all nuance. Uh, if Michael Jordan, a celebrity or somebody who's putting out a product that they're, uh, you know, combined with, they have this implied nuance, this gossip, you know, magazine following you around, but you only get glimpses. You get to see him in this restaurant. You get to see him, you know, walk on the street. They're just like us. Whatever it is, it's just a glimpse. The idea of reality TV is we've distilled the person into the story, which it just isn't true. 
and I think it's a fallacy in how people watch it. I don't think it's ne- most reality TV. I don't think is necessarily you should feel bad for watching. And this one sounds especially harmless when there are things like I don't know Fear Factor. It, it did. It sounds it, it Fear Factor. Like, no, fear Factor's fine. Fear Factor's a game show. Fear Factor's eat the cockroaches though, which is that like it feels the most innocuous, the most harmless. Um, yeah. and, and that's what made, uh, what happened the spring so shocking and makes it so difficult while you're watching the show and to, to reconcile the, the two. But I think for me, you know, bigger than the conversation around reality TV, it comes down to a lack of understanding of what possesses somebody, whether they're watching sports or reality TV or defending Taylor Swift's honor or whatever the case to be hostile to someone they don't know on the internet. Oh, and that's fine. They they love it. Like you know, go back in time and talk because to reality some cru- crusading Christians about how they feel about you know Muslims. That's well, but but also because reality television <laughs> has turned real people into characters, you can now scream at the characters you don't. I mean, like. No, but I like I I guess it's just maybe a. Uh, just a failure on my part to understand that part of the human experience. I mean, I'm not someone who talks to the screen when I'm watching a movie. Like it, I understand that this has been mediated for my entertainment. I just, I would never in a million years, I understand the impulse to, if you see somebody you like on a reality TV show to look at their Instagram and see what they're doing with their life these days. I don't understand the impulse to start commenting on their pictures really in any capacity, but especially in a malicious one. I just don't, and I think with that impulse being stoked on multiple fronts, it jeopardizes. But it's not an irrational so behavior. I mean, entertainment and content going forward. I think in your experience in the life that you've lived, it's it seems irrational. But who knows where people are coming from? Who knows how how distant they feel from other people? Who knows how parasocial relationships work on people's brains? Like reality TV has brought people around the world closer in in closer to types of relationships they would never experience in any other way in that way it's a successful medium right it is it's doing what we want films and television shows to do like express something of reality that no one can experience you're right and it's totally a double you're it's totally a double-edged sword because i'm watching the show and going like one of the characters is this 20-something girl who is trying out your dream is to be on uh, japan's hockey olympic team and obviously there are very few uh, opportunities for female <laughs> hockey players in Japan. But in, she's walking around wearing a New York Rangers hat. She's living in, uh, you know, in Nagano. And, and you were father, like, should I get married to this woman? No, oh, wait, no, I'm, married, like, I'm, married. I'm a married her, man. I'm a married her, man. Her father runs a soba restaurant. Her mother died spontaneously of a hemorrhage at her hockey Oof. practice when she was in fifth grade. Oh. And it's just like, this. she's a remarkable person. She's really vivacious and funny and friendly. And, I just felt so grateful watching the show, no matter how, to what extent, you know, uh, her image was distorted for the purposes of of the edit. Um, So sort of gratified to know that she exists out there and that people are like, we live in this big world that's smaller than we think. Uh, And it was really beautiful to me in that way. Um, And I really now I'm hoping that she makes the team in 2021 and that I'll be able to see her in the Olympics. That would be spectacular. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that like that sort of, investment when it curdles into something darker i mean that the, the knowledge that these people are out there can have negative consequences and i think you know with younger generations who were raised with this being the norm and maybe don't first live in an analog world that they learn how to mediate and then 
you know, have training in a way for experiencing this sort of thing. I don't know. It's just like when, when her old live journals come out where she makes jokes about drowning. Puppies, so that's exactly what you'll I have to of. make a decision. <laughs> if you tweet no, it, seriously, like just think of how people react to fictional characters when the creators make but the those wrong people are choice. Especially, right. It's like the same thing. It's the same phenomenon. And thank you for saying that it is all connected. It's the last Jedi. It's the justice league people. I mean, it's, it's all Skylar on, on breaking bad. It's, it's like, fandom. imagine having your own motivations and, and doing something that's against the tide. I don't, it, I don't know. It's, it's just, just fandom I feel like in general. There, there was more, there was more of a morality question for me like a decade ago when it, somebody might have not known what they were signing up for. But mm. now for like legal reasons and because reality TV is everywhere and cheap to produce, I feel like if you opt into a show like this one, you are opting into that a little bit as much as any of us are opting into having bylines right. on well, say, a this movie. show puts us all in yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the time. And I, I don't, I don't know. I just like, it just, it, it just seems like the kind of thing that while I certainly do not want to, um, uh, sort of absolve anyone from the terrorist House production from, egging certain situations on to where uh, Hanukkah Mura would have been in a position where she, she was susceptible to cyberbullying. It does sort of feel like something that is increasingly endemic across all fronts of media. And it makes me very nervous about um, the future of the conversations we have around these things and how toxic it is to produce anything or put yourself out there, have your image projected into the world in any capacity. Uh, and it ultimately leaves me in a position where I I will continue to wrestle with this, but I am, you know, everyone has to sort of draw their own line and, and come up with their own ethical code that they can live with. And I think as long as you continue to question what it is that you're consuming and, and its value, I think that is uh, enough to continue watching, but I'm certainly going to continue watching Tara's house. I have an addictive personality. And when I get hooked on something, I really need to see it through, but um, I, you know, I hope that doesn't make me a bad person and uh, I can only promise to anyone who's outraged by my decision to do that, that I will continue to uh, think critically about the show. Dis- disappoint people. Uh, but That I will continue to tweet directly at directors right, right. that I don't like their movies. Uh, let, me, let, me uh, answer, <laughs> let me answer the unspoken question here for you. Sit down. I don't think you should be on Terrace House America. Uh, Terrace, put that I, application this, down. This is Don't another conversation for another day. Why Terrace House could never <laughs> work in America? Although one of the seasons was set in Hawaii, the cast was right. still exclusively Japanese speaking. Um, and one of I watched the Real World Hawaii. I it's very similar. Uh, and one of the stars. I mean, it's not always uh, tragic endings. The one of the the breakout stars from Terrace House Aloha State uh, is the lead in. She was in Legion, and her name's Lauren Tsai. She's going to be the lead in right. Amy Poehler's upcoming Netflix film. Um, and uh, she's a very talented illustrator. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I think. I, I guess just to sum it up, increasingly, I think the content we consume and how we consume it and how the conversations we see around it evolve is going to require a certain ethical engagement that won't always be fun or comfortable or easy 
Uh, and How will certainly not be you? limited to Terrace House. You right now. This is a Less than 90, mi- 90 days from an American election. Tell me to be civil. Good <laughs> sir. Yeah, we, no. Accept the status quo. No new television shows during election years, please. I mean, it's a norm. It's a clearly established norm. That does it for this week's show. We will be back next week. David may watch something other than nope. the Terrace House between now and then. Maybe not. No telling. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. Please don't message me uh, with your parasocial bullshit. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I love you all. Um, and to express that love, I'm going to tell you that we have fightingintheworm.com where you can listen to the episodes and you can share with pe- new people who could fall in love with us in an overly connected way. I don't know. Uh, fightingintheworm.com uh, I'm David Ehrlich Patches just made me think about how a lot of this talk has stemmed around my ambivalence about putting my son on social media <laughs> I think it all this conversation all kind of stems from the same place uh, you can find us on uh, you can find me on Twitter David Ehrlich please be nice you can find us all on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room please leave us a review we love it so much. We'll read it live at the beginning of the show. Thanks. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. That's real ironic coming from like the day that we recorded this. You tweeted your son's first self made yeah. video. So he's, he's already not, he's already leapfrogged. He's not in that he's video. Not in it, his though. toes are. Yeah, that's true. I mean that's part that's part of him. You, you doxed the, you doxed all holds, his toes on his left <laughs> foot. He holds the copyright yeah, to the doxed Ace so hard. He's the next Xavier Dolan. <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also find me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. And if you're part of our Patreon for that uh, podcast, we're rewatching Black Sails one every day. If uh, you like some parasocial shit that it doesn't involve watching me or real people, but people pretending to be pirates on stars, or Hulu in this case, a Black Sails. But check out The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. What if we replace all reality TV with people pretending to be pirates? Uh, for ethical reasons. That seems like a good idea. Like yeah. Only so, pretending um, to I'm be pirates, Ra- not real pirates. That's less ethically oh, secure. Yeah. yeah, true. Pretend pirates is, is where it's at. We have a lot of Lego pirates in our house. That's a sidebar. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week we are talking about uh, Love Cat, Lovecraft Country and a documentary called Boy State that I should have brought up in our reality TV conversation. Love Cat Country? Love Cat Country. It's called Lovecraft Meow. Country. Um, the documentary Boy State is out this week. Uh, it had there, You will form a lot of parasocial relationships with the kids in this documentary, which I really loved. Maybe we'll talk about it more later. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you should not cyberbully us, but you should <laughs> answer this week's lightning, lightning round question, which was... In honor of apparently Tron 3 joining the perpetually new Crow movie is actually happening... What movie that is considered a bomb needs a revival sequel? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Bye.